The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the writer Kevin Birmingham, whose new book, The Sinner and the Saint, is subtitled Dostoevsky, A Crime and Its Punishment. Kevin, welcome. Now, Dostoevsky has been much written about over the years. What was it that made you think there's something new to say and what were you setting out to do with this book? The idea for the book came from a single paragraph in Joseph Frank's magisterial biography. It's a five-volume biography. It's about 2,500 pages. And yet, even in a biography as long as that, there is almost always a lot of material that's left undiscussed or underexamined. And in that one paragraph... Joseph Frank mentions that one of the inspirations for crime and punishment is the case of a French murderer named Pierre-Francois Lassenaire that Dostoevsky came across in 1861 when he was looking for material for a magazine that he was starting with his brother. Now, I've filed this away. I didn't think too much about it after reading it. Dostoevsky was someone that I wanted to write about for a long time. He has a fascinating life, which I'm sure we'll discuss as we go on. But I couldn't think of a a new angle for talking about it. And one of the things I wanted to do was to talk about crime and punishment in particular and the creation of that masterpiece. And when I went back to La I did a little bit of digging and very quickly realized that he wrote his own memoirs in between the time that he was convicted and guillotined. And when I looked into the memoirs, that's, that's when the idea struck me that this could be a two-part story, a story that goes back and forth between Lassenaire's life and uh, Dostoevsky's life as he is becoming a writer. Yeah. And it is, in some ways, a kind of dual biography. I mean, there's more Dostoevsky, but you do have this, the life of Lassenaire threaded through it. But let's maybe start with Dostoevsky himself. I mean, can you sketch a little the world into which he was born and that early experience? Because his decision to become a writer was, as you say in the book, you know, not just surprising or bold, but, you know, in the social setup, kind of astonishing. So the Dostoevsky was born in 1821. He was coming of age in the 1840s, which was a particularly oppressive time for Tsarist Russia, partly because the regime was responding to the 1848 revolutions that were sweeping Europe. Virtually every European capital in 1848 or 1849 experienced a violent upheaval. And Tsar Nicholas was determined to make sure that there were no upheavals in Russia. And it just happens to be that Petersburg is one of the only capitals where there was not a a revolution. But he was paranoid about it. And that paranoia meant that the secret police were particularly important for Tsarist Russia. It meant that censorship was rampant. It was difficult to find books about socialism or about democracy or about natural rights or anything like that. And in response to that, young people like Dostoevsky were forming small semi-secretive reading groups. And that ultimately became his undoing. The reading groups were being spied upon by one of the the Tsar's men. And Dostoevsky was 
effectively caught making statements against serfdom, which was the foundation of the Russian Empire at the time and an institution that Dostoevsky hated. He thought that it was brutal and oppressive, and his father was rumored to have been murdered by his own serfs. It's not clear whether that actually happened, but he believes it happened, and that probably fueled his own animus against serfdom. Yeah, but I mean, before his conviction and exile, he had this extraordinary overnight success almost, didn't he? I mean, he, he wasn't from the cast of people who traditionally were writers at all. He came from an aristocratic family, but he was at the lowest rung, one of the lowest rungs of the aristocracy in Russia. And so when he looked at writers like Turgenev and Tolstoy, he was envious, he was resentful, he did not have an estate with hundreds of serfs on it, he could not rely upon family wealth in order to make ends meet, he had to write to make a living, and it was a very risky choice to make. When he was 24, he was celebrated as Russia's next up-and-coming writer before he had even published his first novel. There's a small novel called Poor Folk, which basically no one reads anymore, but it was circulating in manuscript form when Dostoevsky was 24, and Russia's leading critic, Belinsky, read it as a manuscript and loved it and was touting him to anyone who would listen. So he enjoyed an unusual amount of success very early, at the age of 24, but by the age of 28, he was waking up before dawn one morning by the secret police who were arresting him, and before long he would be carted off to Siberia where he would spend almost a decade. Now, what were the ideas that were in circulation at the time? Because there's sort of, you build up a very, you know, subtle portrait of these sort of circulating, you know, bits of Rousseau here and there, bits of sort of German philosophy, you know, very illicitly trickling in, and the idea of sort of nihilism and egoism were sort of in the air. How did Dostoevsky react to those ideas? By the time Dostoevsky returned to European Russia in 1860, he was facing a very different ideological climate than the climate that he left 10 years earlier. The serfs were just about to be emancipated, and they were emancipated in 1861, at least officially. And the new generation of radicals that had come of age were taking things much further than he had gone in his own youth. And as you said, you know, nihilism is one of the, the ideas that's circulating at the time. It has a vague definition now. At the time, it meant something pretty precise. What it meant was that you would take nothing on faith, that anything that you were going to accept as true would only be something that you would conclude after your own reasonable deductions. If something wasn't proven to you by evidence, you were not going to believe it. This meant that there would be no faith, there would be no assumption that God exists, no assumption that the Tsar has the right to rule over Russia, no assumption that the state automatically has authority. So it was a form of radical skepticism, but that radical skepticism Dostoevsky saw was actually, beneath it, there was a desire to destroy things, a desire to wipe everything away, a desire for there to be a, a tabula rasa. When Dostoevsky describes the nihilists to his editor, Katkov, he described them as people who want to build a paradise out of a tabula rasa. So there's a two-part definition there that he's working with. One is that they really do want something good for Russia. They want Russia to be an ideal place. 
But it's naive, of course, to, to seek a paradise on a fallen world such as ours. But they also want to wipe everything away. The paradise doesn't exist unless you start from, from scratch. And he knew that that was really a desire to destroy things, to destroy the ruling class, to destroy the czars, to start over. And he wanted his novel to draw out that sense of destruction that's implicit within nihilism. Now, what exactly did the experience of exile in Siberia, you know, how did that shape Dostoevsky's worldview and his understanding of psychology and the sort of things he wanted to do with his fiction? So Dostoevsky was in a, a hard labor prison. It was a prison inside a fortress. And so he was living with the most hardened of criminals in the Russian Empire. And he first came across stories of violence and brutality and murder when he was in Siberia. Before this time, before he had gone to Siberia, murder was, I suppose, the way it is for most of us. It's an abstract concept. It's not something that we have a direct relationship to. But for Dostoevsky, he was fascinated with murder stories, wanted to hear the convict's own stories. He wanted to know specifically what it felt like. He wasn't too much interested in, in the circumstances surrounding it because the circumstances could, could vary dramatically. But the feeling of murder was something that he just had this morbid curiosity about. And he kept trying to feel it through other people's experiences. And by the time he came back to Russia in 1860, at the end of 1859, really, he started to think about this, these criminal desires. And what he realized is that the desire to murder is at heart a, a sense of unbridled freedom, as he put it. It may be faulty to think that, but it was this lashing out of people who felt trapped in some way, and they were looking desperately to feel a thrill. It could be the thrill of leaping from a tower, right? The, the thrill of murdering someone was not unlike the thrill of suicide, at least as he imagined it. There's a thrill of destruction and the sense of destruction as well as self-destruction. Those two things in the heat of the moment sort of merge for Dostoevsky. And he kept returning to those conversations that he had with those criminals over and over again. Does that relate at all to his understanding of, of nihilist philosophy, of that same kind of destructive... Yes. You know, we were talking earlier about the, the philosophical environment. You know, the philosophical environment that he is writing against is this notion of humanity as being rational, as having a singular sense of purpose, as being, you know, Darwin was translated into Russian in 1864, just a couple of years before Crime and Punishment. And so it was the apex of this view of humans as being pleasure-maximizing machines, that basically what you do is you look for food, you look for gratification, and you are single-minded in that purpose. That was the view that was taking over among the progressives of Dostoevsky's time. And Dostoevsky saw human nature as completely different from all of this. For him, humans were contradictory. They would spite themselves. They worked against themselves. They were of two minds, if not more. They were hidden from themselves. They had perverse desires. They were contradictory. And he was exploring that both for people who were murderers and people who were not. And so... A murderer was for him a dramatic 
probably the most dramatic example of the sort of self-destructiveness that he thought was at the heart of society in general and of human beings in particular. Now, how did he, as it were, glom onto Lassinaire as his sort of ideal murderer, if you like? I mean, Lassinaire does have a line somewhere, doesn't he, where he says words to the effect of, to kill without remorse is the greatest exhilaration or greatest freedom that I've ever known. Yeah. He happened to stumble across an account of Lassenaire's trial, which took place in 1835 in Paris. And there are a lot of things about Lassenaire that interested Dostoevsky, partly his, his seeming heartlessness, the fact that he didn't kill with remorse at all. But what was incredibly disturbing to Dostoevsky was that when the trial took place in Paris, people were not universally appalled by Lassenaire. What was surprising to Dostoevsky was that there was a sense of curiosity and fascination with Lassenaire. That Lassenaire actually had what you might call a, a true crime fandom sprout up around him, right? When he was in prison, he received multiple visitors, people were writing him letters, they were sending him gifts, flowers, writing him poetry, sending him food. When he was executed, a likeness of Lassenaire was created and the likeness included his actual hair and whiskers, and crowds came to see this, this likeness of him. His mummified hand was circulating in Parisian literary circles uh, for decades because people were just captivated by him. They were captivated by his memoirs and his persona. And this persona was something that Dostoevsky realized was completely fake. The primary thing, there are a lot of small circumstantial details or elements to Lassenaire's story that Dostoevsky imports into Crime and Punishment. But the most important thing he takes is the notion of a murderer who claims to murder for altruistic purposes, which is exactly what Lassenaire did. He claimed that he was ultimately going to rob banks in order to avenge himself against an unjust society, a society that was divided between the very wealthy and the very poor. This is how he cast himself in his memoirs, and it's the image that circulated pretty widely in the years after his death. Dostoevsky realized that beneath this was really nothing. It was the old, perverse desire to kill for the sake of killing, or to kill simply for the sense of freedom that comes from absolute destruction. And that binary of someone who claims to kill for altruism but really kills for nothing whatsoever is what we find in Raskolnikov, his murderer in Crime and Punishment. Yeah, Lassenaire's own career is, it's quite hard to make out what he's up to a lot of the time, isn't it? I mean, his very first crime, he essentially hands himself in and he's then really kind of shabby and incompetent and, you know, he doesn't seem like any sort of existential, you know, <laughs> a hero or anti-hero. He's fascinated with crime and with criminals. He romanticizes crime and criminals because he thinks that being a criminal is tantamount to being a revolutionary. And remember, this is, you know, a little bit over a decade before the revolutions would, would sweep Europe. But the notion of someone who could be a revolutionary through individual violence was just starting to percolate through into the wider culture. And he captured some of that as it was becoming more and more popular. But he wanted to be a criminal. He pursued criminality. And it's true, as you said, he had a, a desire to be caught. And when Dostoevsky was pitching the idea for Crime and Punishment to his editor, Katkov, 
he said, you know, something that you should know about criminals is that they secretly want to be caught, right? That they're not really evading justice, that there's a sense of guilt and a desire and a pleasure in, in being caught. And he sees that in La Sinere and wants to, to run with it. The first murder that takes place, the dual murder, is a former prison mate of La Sinere's that he knew. It's possible that there are buried motives involving blackmail, but we don't know that for sure. The murder is ostensibly in order to, to rob this man and his widowed mother because they believe that there are thousands of francs stocked away inside the apartment, but there actually aren't. He wanted to use the money in order to rent an apartment and to buy furniture in order to lure the collecting clerks of banks up into these apartments so that he could rob what was in their satchels. Lassenel obviously is French, and a lot of the context that you give to talk about the background of Dostoevsky's ambitions, to the, the world in which Dostoevsky, intellectual world Dostoevsky is moving in, is, is it is very much to do with the idea of a distinctive Russia, a distinctive Russian literature. I mean, how do those things connect or translate? I mean, did it matter for Dostoevsky's purposes that Lassenel wasn't Russian? So France was effectively the looking glass through which Russians saw European culture in general. And, you know, at the time in the 1860s, there was a huge debate, and of course there's still a debate today, about the direction in which Russia should go. Should Russia be more like Europe or not? And for Dostoevsky, France was the model for European culture. He spoke French fluently. It was really the only language in which he was uh, fluent other than Russian. And bourgeois culture, as he saw it, was the potential future for Russia. And so when he thinks about France and writes about French culture, what he's writing about for his Russian audience is a possible future that he wants to warn against that we should not be bourgeois, that there is something terribly amiss in bourgeois culture, and the very fact that Parisians, not all of them, but even some of them, if some of them were to put someone like La Sinere on a pedestal, that should be a warning sign. That is certainly not the way Russia should go. And when he writes about traveling through Europe, there are constant warning signs for him, things, little signals. For example, the Crystal Palace in London was a signal to his readers when he talked about it of what could go wrong with industrialization. That here was effectively a temple towards machinery, a temple to, to Babylon, as he called it, this, this worship of material things. And he wanted people to get a glimpse of Europe because he didn't want Russia to take that path. But at the same time, he's very down on Russia's sort of agrarian feudalism. There was no clear path ahead. What, basically, what Dostoevsky was trying to do was that you know, Russia in the 1860s was splitting apart between two different camps. If you were an intellectual, you were either a westernizer or you were a Slavophile, people who wanted to resurrect an older, more traditional sense of what Russia was, or at least their idea of what Russia was. These camps started widening and widening further and further, and Dostoevsky, when he came back from Siberia, wanted to chart that middle path where you would borrow the best from what was good in the tradition of Russia, but also borrow the best from Europe. That you can have some sense of technology and industrialization that can go hand in hand with a healthy sense of an agrarian past 
and that you can be true to the peasantry of Russia while also being true to Russia's own scientists and their, their own Western ambitions. It was more and more difficult to, to hold this middle line, and Dostoevsky was effectively becoming a lonely voice as the 1860s wore on. And in terms of his sort of personal circumstances, I mean, things transform so quickly with him. You know, there's this absolutely terrifying account of what it's actually like being in Siberia and, you know, the brutal cold, the, you know, capricious punishments, the violence, the theft, you know, it's everything he can barely stand. He's extremely unwell. How does he somehow kind of gather his strength to come back and start a new magazine and, as it happens, get married? And You know, one thing that you will notice if you go through Dostoevsky's letters, and there are, you know, several volumes of letters is that every hardship that he undergoes, he has this incredible resiliency. Just really just, he talked about it himself. He had this, what he called a feline vitality, the vitality of a cat. No matter what fate threw his way, he was able to manage it. And we're talking about someone who thought he was going to die when he was 28. He was you know, there was a mock execution. There were three men that were tied to stakes and, you know, hoods were put on them and there was a firing squad in front of them. And he was next in line. He thought he was going to die. But instead of dying, he got shipped off to Siberia. And when he was sent to Siberia, you know, a lot of people thought of it as a daunting thing. But he loved it. He was celebrating life. He thought, this is a chance for me to be reborn, that I can go to Siberia. And no matter how bad it is, there will be human beings there. And I can commune with these people and learn from them and understand them and to be alive is just such a wonderful thing. Imagine doing that, having that sense of optimism, you know, on your way to Siberia. Of course, his tune would change a bit once the reality of Siberia set in. But over and over again, you know, his his brother and his first wife die just a couple of months apart. He's incredibly alone. He's addicted to gambling. He has temporal lobe epilepsy. The epileptic seizures that he endured were causing more and more intense bouts of depression and what he called a mental fog. So his life was extraordinarily difficult, but he had an incredible love for life, for living. And it's not something we normally think of when we think of Dostoevsky. We think of this sort of tortured soul. But when I think of Dostoevsky, it's really the resilience that he had and the passion for living and doing as much as he could for life that really stands out. And how did he get started on Crime and Punishment? How did he embark? Because the process of writing it was kind of extraordinary. I mean, I know you've looked at his manuscripts and, you know, he revised and revised and scribbled and revised and, you know. He was stuck in Wiesbaden, Germany. It was uh, a gambling town. The casino was there. Dostoevsky was playing roulette, as he often did. He, like anyone else who was addicted to gambling, would lose all of his money. After he lost his money, he would ask friends for money. When he lost that money, he started pawning his possessions. He had pawned all of his possessions. He was stuck in a hotel where he had been staying for over a month. He couldn't pay the bill. The proprietor, of course, was familiar with cases like this, knew what was happening, was threatening to call the police. The proprietor was not giving him meals. He was not replacing his candles. He was effectively stuck. He was a prisoner in this hotel. In order to make money, he had to finally resort to the only thing he had left, which was writing. And so he dashed off a proposal for a novel about a murderer 
so that he could get an advance. And the advance would pay his bill in the hotel and get him back to Russia and get him back on his feet again. The idea for the story was initially going to be about 80 to 90 pages. He expected that it would only take him about a month to write. And in between the time that he wrote that proposal and got back to St. Petersburg a few weeks later, the story had already grown. And it kept growing until it became the novel that we know today, which is probably about five to 600 pages. And that novel itself kind of changes shape as he's writing it, doesn't it? Yeah, he initially imagined it as a first-person novel, that it was going to be the confession of a murderer years after the murder happens. Then he imagined it another way because he wanted to bring the murderer a little bit closer to the crimes themselves. So he thought, instead of it happening eight years after the fact, why don't we imagine him confessing it on the stand at a trial? And he's getting closer and he realizes this isn't right either because in order for him to confess it at the trial, he has to confess it with some degree of lucidity. And the lucidity is specifically something that the murderer doesn't have when he's committing the murders. So he comes up with this other strategy that changes completely the way the novel is written and the perspective that we have on this crime. So instead of having it be a first-person account, we have an attached first-person where we are just slightly removed from Raskolnikov's perspective. It's like we're looking over his shoulder as he walks up a darkened staircase, as he sort of muscles his way into a pawnbroker's apartment and murders her with an axe and then murders her sister when she surprisingly comes in. He wants to recreate all of the feelings that Raskolnikov is having at the time. That includes all of the confusions and misunderstandings. So there are fever dreams, there are hallucinations, in Crime and Punishment, but we can't know that's happening until after the fact. As soon as we get the first hallucination, and it's a fever dream about his landlady being beaten by a police officer, we read that and we think it's happening. It isn't until after the fact that Dostoevsky pulls the rug out from under us. Once that rug is pulled out from us once, we have to wonder at all times, is the rug going to be pulled out again? That sense of uncertainty and paranoia is the feeling that Dostoevsky wanted to create in this novel, and it wasn't possible to do that through a normal first-person perspective. And had that been done before, or was he breaking new literary ground here? It had been done before, and you know, we, we think of it as, as free and direct discourse, where there's a, a narrative voice, an authorial voice that borrows the voice of a character in order to get inside the character's head. Jane Austen is probably the single most popular example. There are earlier examples than that. Fanny Burney is, is an example. But when he was bringing it to Russians, he was bringing it to a new audience, and he was doing it in a different way. And importantly, he was doing it for a character that was not at all likable, a character who is in a way detestable. To do it for a murderer was to get uncomfortably close to someone that we do not want to be close with. And that was something very different from what we see in Jane Austen. And the effect was electrifying. When Crime and Punishment was, was published, it was serialized throughout 1866. When that first serial was published in January, the January issue of the Russian Herald, Readers were ill. They were physically ill to read it. And it was uh, very disturbing to people and remained disturbing throughout the course of that year. And it effectively remade Dostoevsky's career. Now, 
As for the principal protagonist's name, he met a lot of Raskolniks in his exile, didn't he? Yeah, so a Raskolnik is a schismatic, someone who decides to split from the Russian Orthodox Church. And historically, the schismatics, the Raskolniks, were often splitting from the church for small, detailed liturgical reasons, not for large doctrinal reasons. And for Dostoevsky, there were multiple Raskolniks in Siberia with him because it was technically illegal to to be a Raskolnik, and some Raskolniks set fire to Russian Orthodox churches, and arsonists were among the prisoners with whom Dostoevsky lived. But they were incredibly religious and incredibly devout. It was a form of social protest or political protest when political protest wasn't really possible. It was still in a way possible to be a religious objector. But there was absolutely no appetite for a political objector. So you could still see, up until today, examples of religious protesters who were doing, who were doing this because a political protest was impossible. But the Raskolnik's combination of intense faith while also being very attuned to what Dostoevsky thought of as being pedantic attention to a text was fascinating and something that he thought was akin to what was going on among the radicals at the time and what he saw Raskolnikov doing. Raskolnikov is literary. He wanted to be a writer at one point. He is a writer, wrote an article about crime. But for Dostoevsky, the, the error is not in the intentions, because the intentions are good, but in being pedantic and in focusing too much on theories and abstractions. And Raskolnikov's problem is that he wants to theorize his way towards goodness, but he has no feeling for goodness. And for Dostoevsky, this is a huge, huge problem, that goodness ultimately comes from a feeling, and it can't be reasoned toward. Well, that's a a case you made quite early on. I think you say that a lot of people think of Dostoevsky as a writer who starts with a large philosophical idea and works down towards a novel. You say that's getting it the wrong way up. Yeah, he, Dostoevsky writes from the bottom up. He begins, as Bakhtin reminds us, uh, with voices. There are specific voices, characters, and details that he knows he wants to talk about, but doesn't necessarily know why. Lassenaire is one example of those people. He knew he wanted to write about Lassenaire, couldn't figure out quite how it would work, keeps toying with an idea about writing about this specific person, and it doesn't come together until about five years later, when he realizes how he can make it fit in with a larger idea. But the dirty top hat, for example, Raskolnikov has a threadbare top hat. That top hat, I believe he takes from Lassenaire, though I don't really know for sure, because the images of Lassenaire always depict him with a top hat around. And of course, Dostoevsky had his own top hat that was threadbare. The top hat was there from the very, very beginning. The voice of Marmeladov, the civil servant that's part of another strand of crime and punishment, is also there from the very beginning. The staircases of St. Petersburg are there from the beginning. The, the oppressive heat of Petersburg is always something he knew he wanted. There were feelings that he knew he wanted to capture, the sense of being trapped, the sense of living in a very small garret of a room is something that, that he knew he wanted. But it wasn't even when he's writing his proposal to Katkov, you can see him spinning his wheels when he tries to talk about the larger ideas at stake because he can't really think of a good parallel to the story. He can't quite describe it. It's because it's not there yet. 
when you read Crime and Punishment, there are about five different excuses that Raskolnikov gives for committing the murder. And the reason why there are all these excuses is because Raskolnikov, too, is spinning his wheels. They're all faulty excuses. But they are excuses that a radical at the time would offer. And beneath it, what was becoming clearer and clearer to Dostoevsky was getting to this notion of of killing for the sense of exhilaration that comes from sheer destruction. And then a sort of post-hoc rationalization, I guess. Yes, that's right. And the ending of the book is something that disconcerts a lot of people. Dostoevsky, if I understand you rightly, he kind of wrestled a bit with how it was going to end. Is that right? Because it was such a success, he toyed with the idea of having a, a second volume, a volume that would include the full redemption of Raskolnikov. He doesn't write that volume, we never have it. So when this novel ends, what we're supposed to see is Raskolnikov on the precipice of a change. Maybe he'll change, maybe he won't. He is sent to Siberia the same way that Dostoevsky was. He has a love interest, Sonia, who follows him to Siberia. The typical reader of Crime and Punishment will close the book thinking that Raskolnikov has found God and he's found love and he's been redeemed. That, I think, is the wrong way to read it. The truth is that though he's beginning to fall in love with Sonia, he still resents Sonia, he still pushes her away, he's still not quite able to love, and we're not really sure whether or not he'll be able to make that connection. As far as Christianity is concerned, he has a Bible. It's the only book you're allowed to read legally in Siberia, and he keeps it under his pillow, but he never opens it. That Bible still remains unopened by the final page. And what Dostoevsky wanted was to have Raskolnikov at the nadir of his life, so that if he did write that next volume, we would see him redeeming himself slowly and the long, arduous journey that it would take. He did not think that Raskolnikov could open the Bible and suddenly would be saved. It would take another 600 pages in order for that redemption to take place. How do you read Dostoevsky's own relationship to Raskolnikov and perhaps through that to Lassenaire? I mean, is it one of partial identification? Is it one of a sort of psychological scrutiny or analysis? What, how, do you, how do you read it? I do think of it as partial identification. I think, you know, for those of your listeners who have read all or a part of Joseph Frank's biography of Dostoevsky, one of the things that's very distinctive about it is the detail in which Frank discusses all of the fiction. What's implicit in that is that so much of Dostoevsky's fiction is actually autobiographical, and that if you want to understand a lot of how Dostoevsky felt, even to an intimacy that he did not reveal in his letters, you have to go into his characters and see how his characters think. He did identify with Raskolnikov. He did have this impulse for destruction or self-destruction. He did, I think, have violent impulses, though he never, of course, indulged those impulses. And there are many characters that are clearly based on him, such as, you know, the character in The Gambler, where he's, he has a tumultuous relationship with this woman, and the intense heat of that passion makes him want to strangle Polina, the love interest. And you can tell that this is Dostoevsky writing about himself, that he's so infuriated with this woman that he can't quite have, that it makes him indulge in the fantasy of violence that, of course, he always pulls back. And writing fiction was, in a way, 
a way for him to exercise his own demons, a way for him to explore those elements of himself that he was not proud of, a way for him to peer into the darkness that he saw in himself while never fully succumbing to that darkness. And how does Dostoevsky's religious sense impinge on on the novel, do you think? As you say, there's a very pointed, you know, the Bible is under the pillow, but it's never opened. Yeah. I mean, Dostoevsky believed that, you know, salvation comes through suffering. He thought that suffering was good for him. He thought that Siberia was good for him. He thought of it as a resurrection. And you can see that happening, taking place in Siberia. It was very easy for Dostoevsky to have stopped the novel with his confession. He has a sort of I don't want to say half-hearted, but he does turn himself into the police at the end of the novel. He doesn't do it out of any sense of remorse. He does it because he feels as if it's a duty to do it, that, you know, the women that he's killed, the pawnbroker and her sister, are still never fully humans to him. He never regrets the fact that they are living creatures that he's killed. But he does start to feel the need to suffer before he can feel that sense of remorse, before he can turn to God. And seeing him in Siberia as the suffering is beginning was, I think, uh, crucial for Dostoevsky. And I think it's a mistake to read it as a, as a casual addendum to the novel. Yeah, you, say, you make the point that in an early draft, the sister is pregnant and that's sort of redacted or at least, let, you know, it ceases to be something that's explicit. Why do you think he made that change? You know, it's a, it's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer. There are a lot of things that I think Dostoevsky wanted to keep implicit. When you do read the final version of the novel, there are hints that the sister was pregnant because someone mentions that the sister is you know, constantly pregnant, pregnant over and over again. And the fact that she's sort of used by the men around her is part of what makes her such an abject figure. But there was something possibly too disturbing about that. And I think, you know, what's unwritten in Dostoevsky is part of what's captivating about it. I think the same is true for every novel, is that, you know, there's always more to discover. There's a depth beneath the surface that will always be there. And we have to look, and sometimes we'll be able to see deeper beneath that surface, but we'll never get to the bottom of it. And that that little detail that you pulled out is is an example of that. Kevin Birmingham, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam. Sinner and the Saint is out now. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.